All right, our third speaker on today's panel is Dr. Emily Pine. Emily lectures in modern drama in UCD. She's published widely in the fields of Irish cultural and memory studies and is the author of The Politics of Irish Memory, Performing Remembrance in Contemporary Irish Culture. Thank you. Famously, Theodora Adorno argued that poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. Adorno's point is that art is impossible after trauma because the aestheticizing of trauma removes some of its horror. But this is not, as many people assume, an argument against making art after trauma, but rather a clarion call for artists and audiences to think about the kind of art that is made. Because art is essential in the post-traumatic world. It can help to express some of the trauma, particularly when other forums are closed to hearing about it or commemorating it. This has been the case in Ireland where it fell to the arts decades before any official investigation to open up the closed world of institutions and the memory of institutional abuse. Today what I want to focus on is Adorno's understanding that trauma changes the world, therefore it changes art. Because if art is to respond adequately to trauma, it cannot simply aestheticize it, it must instead perform differently. And so perhaps the best response that art can make in the wake of trauma is to change the rules, to challenge the audience by choosing different representational aims, to be like trauma itself, barbaric. We can ask then what kinds of trauma art, or for the symposium's purposes, trauma theatre can choose. In very broad terms, theatrical narratives divide into two main types, familiarising and defamiliarising. Familiarising narratives tell us stories about the world we recognise and crucially that we are comfortable in and with. Defamiliarizing narratives, on the other hand, make us uncomfortable and as a result make us look at the world anew. And I think it falls upon trauma theatre to be defamiliarizing, to make the stories and the characters being told new to their audience. This is not about punishing the audience, you'll be glad to hear, or, and this is important, about traumatizing the audience simply as a way of communicating a victim's trauma. The need for trauma theatre to be defamiliarizing is about creating, as Louise and Mannix have talked about already, active and engaged spectators, audiences who are aware of their involvement in the process of meaning making. The reason that engaged audiences are so vital in trauma theatre, and in particular in relation to hidden trauma, is precisely because of past problems with disengagement. In relation to institutional abuse, much of the Irish, Irish public reported a general sense that the abuses happening behind religious walls were not known or fully understood. But that can't be true. Because the institutions were seen. They were seen by the communities that abutted their walls, by the families whose members were committed to them, by the courts who sentenced children and women, by the government inspectors that visited and the governments that funded them. So how can we explain the failure to understand what was happening within them? Because while they were seen, they were not perceived. 
This problem of perception is not a literal blindness, but a failure, an inability, and a refusal to interpret what was being seen. It was a failure of spectatorship. And so the theatre that comes afterwards, after the initial trauma, and after the trauma of being not seen, must set that right and must be about active spectatorship. The result is not only a commemorative community, but renewed social agency through active spectatorship. Two of the forms of theatre which have proved internationally hugely powerful in this context and which are only becoming now relatively known in Ireland are documentary and verbatim theatre and site-specific theatre. So I want to address now for a few minutes these forms with references to a new production's Laundry, Manic Spins, James X, and the Abbey and Mary Raftery's No Escape. These are three very different kinds of shows that don't look the same and are not performed in the same ways. Yet what all three productions have in common is the insistence that the audience act as a partner in the co-production of meaning and truth. Laundry by a New Productions is a site-specific piece of theatre where, as you've heard from Louise, audience members are led singly through the former convent and Magdalene Laundry on Shaw McDermott Street, which is essentially around the corner from where we are now. The piece is part of a trilogy, or a four-part now, of work by a New Productions which aims to open up the history of this part of the capital, and in so doing to raise the profile of issues from the past which continue to be problematic, such as poverty, violence, and crucially, disenfranchisement. The production required each spectator basically not to be a spectator, but to become actively involved in the production, such as unbinding a young woman's body before she bathes, or helping another woman to escape. These interactions require ethical decisions to be made, and the audience very often felt pressurized to carry out the actions. When the young woman, for instance, escapes from the laundry, the audience member is bundled into a waiting taxi, and the taxi driver says, do you know her? The test, of course, is whether you say yes or no. If you say yes, you open yourself up to his scornful scrutiny. If you say no, you're guilty of disavowal. And the question here is how involved do you want to be and what kind of responsibility are you willing to accept? Though the other two productions that I'm going to talk about occur more traditionally in a theatre and on a stage, they are no less implicating. Flynn's performance of James X is, unsurprisingly, full throttle and makes for disturbing witnessing. When James is incarcerated in letter frack, he appeals to anyone who will listen. Somebody tells someone. They make us squeal and dance like little pigs. Someone come and get me. Where are you? Where are you? Someone tell someone. The isolation of the voice here is heart-wrenching, but the criminal wrong is that no one told anyone. Flynn provides documents to support his narrative, emulating a key trope of documentary theatre which uses the archive to underscore truth claims. These documents reveal a counter-narrative written by school inspectors, probation officers, and child psychologists. The most disturbing element or moment of the play is when the performance stops and the actor directly addresses the audience, breaking that secure fourth wall. 
Flynn produces the stack of documents which classify the child James X and demands that the audience become agents of change. And there's a transformation of what's happening on stage and as a result a transformation of what's happening in the audience and what being an audience means. That sense of active spectatorship is also vital to No Escape, a piece of documentary theatre commissioned by the Abbey in response to the Ryan Report. And I have to differ from Mannix here and say that I think it was a pioneering and brave piece of work. The play's words are taken by Mary Raftery directly from the report, and she distills what is a huge archive that a single person cannot get through into a selective series of testimonies which an audience can then try to assimilate and take on board. I hope that anyone who hasn't seen this production yet will be able to attend the reading tomorrow night. It's one of those rare moments in theatre that you think every single citizen should see this. No Escape gives the stage over to a series of witnesses, though the testimony is anonymised as it is in the report. In presenting these voices publicly, the play opens up a closed and private judicial inquiry and gives the audience, as a result, a sense of ownership, not only of the findings, but of the process. This is, after all, a shared past, and No Escape makes it part of public discourse, demonstrating how theatre can inspire a sense of collectivity. The play consists of testimony from former victims of abuse, as well as interviews with representatives of the congregations responsible for that abuse. These interviews are eye-opening in terms of showing how a culture of abuse was maintained for so many decades. Abuse of children is not a mystery to be consigned to a bad past, it still happens, nor to a faceless abuser but rather it is an all-too-traceable series of events which led to abuse becoming normative and systemic. The corollary of this is that the refusal to see the abuse, both within and outside the institutional walls, also became normative. All three of these productions I've mentioned prioritise the voices of those who were abused. And in enabling these voices to be heard in their own words, the plays recognise minority voices with universal impact. To go back to where I started, all three of these shows radically defamiliarise the past. They do this by fundamentally shifting the status accorded to different memory groups. In other words, what is being commemorated changes because who is being commemorated changes. If you listen to the voices of the victims, then you get a memorial to victimization. By choosing different representational aims, these three productions rethink the assumptions that commemorative practices are based on, and in this, commemoration has the potential to become a truly ethical act. The purpose of commemoration is not to perpetually enshrine a sense of victimhood or trauma. Rather, it is a vital mode of acknowledging and making public a history of victimization and exclusion. And this is the ethical dimension, with the express purpose that it never happens again. And so one of the most useful questions we can ask over the next few days is, whether, is how the commemoration and performance of memory can aid the construction of an active and ethical society. Theatre might just have the answer. Thank you.